All right, so you're in B100, and this is uh, a session with Craig Blomberg. I'm going to introduce him in a second. But I want to give some more people opportunities to write down a question. And the kind of focus of this discussion will be concerning biblical translation, the New Testament manuscripts, and the reliability of the Bible. So if you have a question kind of in those premises, uh, would you please maybe raise your hand if you'd like to write it down, if you didn't get a chance to write one. And uh, can I get you? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and uh, if, you could, if you could share pens. And uh, we'll get started. We have about 40 minutes, it looks like. Yeah. New Testament manuscripts, reliability of the Bible. All right, so let me introduce our speaker. Dr. Craig Blomberg joined the facility of Denver Seminary in 1986. He is currently a distinguished professor of the New Testament. He completed his PhD in New Testament and specializes in the parables and the writings of Luke and Acts at Aberdeen University in Scotland. He received his master's from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and his bachelor's from Augustana College. Before joining the faculty at Denver Seminary, he taught at Palm Beach Atlantic College and he was a research fellow at Cambridge, England with Tyndale House. He's authored or edited 20 books, including the historical reliability of the Gospels. Also, uh, biblical interpretation. And can we still believe the Bible? So uh, without further ado, I just uh, want to just want to welcome you, Blongberg. Um, Thank you very much. Cool. We can hear you. And uh, do you just uh, want to just add anything about who you are, what you're passionate about, what your interests are? I am passionate about helping people believe that uh, the Bible is credible. And uh, I'm passionate about my wife and two daughters and one grandson. Great. <laughs> awesome. Well, let me just get started with the first question. Have books been added or subtracted from the Bible? How can I know that the Bible has not been tampered with? The process of choosing books uh, that would be treated as... Uh, uniquely authoritative and inspired uh, comes in two big stages. The Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Christian Old Testament, um, themselves were formed uh, over centuries of time with the, the Torah, the five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, being the oldest sacred collection, and then what were called the prophets that include not just the books we often think of as prophetic, but also uh, the rest of the historical books of the Old Testament. And then finally, uh, the least uh, coherent group of books uh, of wisdom and poetry that just were called the writings, but every discussion that we have, uh, every account 
from uh, the ancient rabbis uh, suggests that uh, there were a handful of the 39 books as we number them today that were discussed, but there were never any others that were proposed for inclusion. So if there ever was a time when something else stood a strong chance of being included and was left out, uh, that has disappeared from history altogether and there's no testimony whatever to it, which makes it unlikely that it ever happened given the amount of testimony that we do have. The New Testament came to being much more quickly. Um, the books themselves were written within about a 70-year period of time, uh, maybe even less than that. And uh, there, there were, uh, in the first 300 years of church history, uh, the occasional uh, second century document, uh, orthodox and apostolic in its teaching, but just a little bit later than the time of the other 27 books that was proposed, um, but none of them ever got much um, traction. And the criteria that were used were, uh, could you trace a book to an apostle or a close associate of an apostle? Did it um, cohere internally and help uh, to uh, complete the uh, open-endedness of the Hebrew canon? Um, and was it viewed as uh, widely relevant to all the church throughout the ancient Roman Empire and beyond rather than something that was valued just by one small uh, segment of uh, Christianity? So um, although you get all kinds of counterclaims today, uh, you actually look at the evidence and it's, uh, it's pretty cut and dry. Very good. Um, the next question we'd like to ask, it's a little bit broad, but uh, it's, why can we trust the New Testament? Um, I'm tempted to reply with an equally broad question. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> and I'm not just being uh, uh, facetious, though I am slightly. Um, the question of one's starting point is, uh, is a very significant question. Um, if I discover a previously unknown Greek document that emerges in uh, some hitherto-for buried room of an ancient Greek monastery and it looks like it gives me added information uh, about some ancient uh, ruler of Greece, if it comes from the right time period, if it bears all the signs of uh, fitting in with other things that we know about history of the day, if there aren't blatant historical anachronisms, if we can propose a uh, plausible scenario how this was buried and not discovered until uh, today. If there seems to be little signs of it being uh, fictionally created, then most historians will de facto give it the benefit of the doubt. 
Um, we saw that just a few years ago when the internet was all abuzz with uh, Dr. Karen King from Harvard University having come into possession uh, through the antiquities market of a scrap of sixth century uh, uh, parchment. And uh, it was written in Coptic, the language of ancient Egypt. Um, and uh, just fragments, and it seemed like one fragment could be translated. And Jesus said, my wife, so if you follow the internet, uh, seven or eight years ago now, uh, maybe a couple more than that, I forget, uh, for a couple of weeks, it was all abuzz with this newly found gospel of Jesus' wife. And the assumption was, until there was reason to think otherwise, that, that this was an authentic document. Now, several years later, it was definitively proved that this was a modern forgery. But uh, that's the approach that uh, scholars will typically take. Um, so, yes, I can talk about manuscript evidence. I can talk about uh, the antiquity. I can talk about fulfilled prophecy. I can talk about how the whole narrative of scripture hangs together from start to finish. I can talk about vast amounts of archaeological and inscriptional corroboration, and that's why Brandon said this was a broad question. I want me to go on, but if you want to boil that down to some more specific pieces, um, at the end of the day, um, the very fact that somebody asked the question, why would we believe in it? shows that they're starting from a perspective that historians don't operate with with other ancient documents. You start from the perspective of assuming authenticity unless there are strong reasons to the contrary. So uh, a better form of discussion, a more productive one, would be suggest a reason you don't think it should be trusted, and then let's talk about that. Mm. That's very good. And then I'd just like to add some uh, clarity. It's a discussion I have with college students or young people new to apologetics. Is uh, Can you describe a little bit more what an anachronism is and uh, how that helps you understand historical reliability? An anachronism is uh, what some people spend a lot of time trying to uh, find in watching movies. It's where it's supposed to be set in the mid Middle Ages and somebody notices that there's a guy in the background who's still wearing his watch. Um, can't, can't be true. Uh, an anachronism is uh, George Washington crossing the Delaware in a motorcycle, something like evil Knievel used to do. Um, something that couldn't have happened at the time period that it's supposed to have. That's very good. I'll remember that. So the next one is, uh, was translating the Bible, or has translating the Bible been like the telephone game? Um, well, maybe you're thinking not so much of the translation of the Bible, but the transmission of the Bible. Um, because when, when people translate the Bible, they work with a written text, so nobody's talking to anybody. But if the questioner is thinking of uh, Bart Ehrman's uh, favorite example, that before anything was written down, uh, those parts of scripture that deal with uh, history in the Old Testament uh, oral tradition often passed along 
the words of the prophets, for example, for uh, centuries. And in the New Testament, certainly uh, the Gospels and Acts, there was at least one generation oral tradition. Um, the model is completely wrong. Uh, there is no evidence anywhere to suggest that ancient Jews or Christians um, got together secretly with one person at a time and quietly whispered into their ears um, important teachings that they wanted that person to pass on to others. Um, we're not aware that that was ever done anywhere, and that's what the children's game of telephone is all about. It's about uh, whispering into one child's ear um, a fairly long and potentially uh, convoluted sentence and then having them try to remember it and whisper it to the next child. And you do this eight or ten times and have the last person say out loud what they heard and everybody laughs at how garbled it's gotten. Well, it's a funny story, but nobody ever oral tradition that way in the ancient world. It was always public. It was always in the presence of multiple witnesses. It was always with uh, official uh, community-approved uh, transmitters of the tradition. And that's not to say that believers didn't talk about their stories in all kinds of context, but for the, the formal tradition of passing on sacred uh, beliefs, epic traditions. And this has been demonstrated with research in all kinds of pre-literate and semi-literate, uh, particularly rural cultures in and around the, the ancient Near East. Um, certified people did it. They did it in public. They did it in the presence of others who knew the tradition. And those others had both the right and the responsibility ability to interrupt and correct the speaker if you made any mistake. So you couldn't have a model that is more far removed from the idea of children game a telephone if you tried. Thank you. So our next question is a little bit about dating the New Testament and it reads, since the New Testament does not mention the destruction of the temple, were they all written before 70 AD? So if you could give some insight on the, the timeline of uh, the writing of this New Testament. Well, first I'll say that, that uh, I really prefer dating my wife to dating the New Testament. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Very good. That, that was just to see if anybody was sleeping in the room. Uh, actually, they all look pretty attentive. That's, that's good. But I think there, there are people I can't see behind you, Brandon. So I'll say that that's was upset. for their benefit. Um, oh, there's some of them. Okay. Uh, <laughs> hi. That is, uh, that's one of those arguments from silence that's very hard to know what to do with. If you're going to uh, have any kind of an argument from silence, uh, you have to have something that there's a strong reason to expect it to be present. Um, Sherlock Holmes, famous hound of the Baskervilles. There was a dog in the house where the murder took place. Why did the dog never bark? You expect something to happen. Um, what are the New Testament books? Well, four of them are accounts of Jesus' life 
and death and resurrection that take us up to uh, about AD 30 chronologically, some say 33, and stop. The book of Acts takes us from that point chronologically up to about AD 62, with Paul still in house arrest in Rome, and it stops. Why would we expect anything about AD 65 or 70 or 75 or 80? It wasn't the purpose of those documents to uh, talk about uh, later events. What about the letters? Well, most of the letters can be dated before AD 70. Paul uh, was marked under uh, Roman Emperor Nero sometime in the mid to late 60s. So was Peter. James may well have been written uh, in the late uh, uh, 40s, would be the oldest possible date for it. Um, it becomes of interest when you come to the book of Revelation because a lot of the imagery that John is given in his visions, God is clearly attempting to communicate something that will make some sense to John, and a lot of it sounds like persecution that Christians already had experienced under Nero. But uh, most ancient sources date Revelation to the 90s, to the time of the emperor Domitian, why would you talk about the destruction of the temple 30 years later uh, when you're writing to uh, Christians in what we would call Western Turkey other than in Israel? So there are people who have read all kinds of things one way or the other. No mention means it has to be way after 70 or no mention means it has to be before 70. But unless there's some reason that Books in the New Testament wanted to talk about that period of time. The lack of reference to the destruction of Jerusalem probably doesn't mean much one way or the other. That's a boring answer. The dating of it? Uh, could you share a little bit about the dating of Hebrews or the date? Written. of Hebrews. Um, it appears uh, that uh, the author, who is never named, is writing to Jewish Christian house churches in and around Rome. And he says in chapter 12, 4, uh, well, let me not paraphrase it. I knew I set out a Bible here for good reason. Let me quote it exactly. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. What on earth does that refer to? What, what kind of sin would you resist potentially to the point of death? Well, maybe it's not my personal sin. Maybe it's the sin of persecuting who are martyring Christians for their faith. And if that's true, as a pretty fair consensus of scholars would argue, 
then uh, Nero's persecution, which began in 64 and very much did martyr Christians in Rome, uh, hasn't begun yet. But it may be getting very close because a lot of the events in Hebrews uh, that are referred to make it sound like people are more and more suffering uh, at the hands of those around them for their faith. So a lot of people would say Hebrews may have been written in about 63, give or take a year. Uh, but again, that that doesn't, if, if, if that follow-up question had, had anything to do with the question of age 70, then uh, it's obviously too early to, uh, to know anything about uh, those events. Yeah, thank you for that insight. Um, so the next topic is about Q and asking which gospel is written first. So if you could first explain what Q is and the discussion and scholarship around Q, and then maybe add some of the research that you've done about which one could, could have been first. Well, there's this character in most of the James Bond movies. Oh, that, that's, that's not the Q that we're talking about? Um, okay. Q is the first letter of the German word Quella, which is the German word for source. And at least as far back as uh, the philosopher Friedrich Schleiermacher in around the 1830s, the suggestion has been made that uh, on the assumption that, here's the other part of the question, Mark was the first gospel to be written, um, and Matthew and Luke clearly follow Mark uh, closely at many points, um, even using his exact wording at many points, but they also add uh, a lot of information not found in Mark, and uh, about half of the extra information is uh, unique to Matthew or unique to Luke, actually a little more than half. But then there are roughly 235 verses, not a scientific unit measurement, um, that Matthew and Luke contain similar enough in wording to suggest that they're referring to the same teaching or events. And what's fascinating is almost, not quite, but almost all of them are teachings of Jesus, not narratives of things that he did. So about 235 verses common to Matthew and Luke but not in Mark. Now, the simplest explanation would be that either Matthew knew Luke and relied in part on Luke, just like he relied on Mark, and that, or that Luke knew Matthew and relied on Matthew just as he relied on Mark. But there are a dozen or more criteria that... Uh, people reading the Gospels very closely look for when there are parallels, try to decide who has preserved an account the most literally, especially if it's a, a teaching of Jesus. Can you translate it very easily back into Aramaic, the language that Jesus would have spoken? 
in most of the contexts he found himself in. Is it pretty short, succinct, without uh, sort of the kind of explanatory observations that a later writer might want to add? Are there at times puzzling, unexplained features that, again, uh, a later writer writing a more detailed account might to, uh, give an interpretation of in some way? Um, are there embarrassing features? Um, and a whole host of these criteria um, fairly consistently. Uh, another one is simply the style of Greek that these words were translated into. Um, Marx is the simplest and the most rugged and reads like somebody still trying to learn Greek as a second language, which makes all the sense historically in the context. Matthew is a little smoother. Luke is much more literate, which makes sense for a Gentile uh, position. So on the assumption that those kinds of criteria can help us uh, answer these questions, Mark consistently, where he is paralleled, looks like the oldest and most literal account. When you apply those criteria to Matthew and Luke, in the 235 verses or so that they have in common, not found in Mark, you don't get any consistent pattern. About half the time Matthew looks like he's more literal, about half the time Luke looks like he's more literal. So maybe that suggests that both were drawing on a common source and uh, about half the time it looked more like what we now have in Matthew, and about half the time it looked more like what we now have in Luke. Will I ever be martyred for belief in Q? No, not for one. Um, it's a hypothesis. <laughs> it's only a hypothesis, and we have to remind ourselves of that over and over and over again. Um, but that's what commentators do. Uh, that's what people who study the Bible for a lifetime do all over the place. When we don't know things for sure, we fall back on what seems like most likely. Yeah, thank you for that clarification. Now I can tell from the people's looks that that <laughs> total put them to sleep. <laughs> um, so say that you're in conversation and... Uh, this question says, a Judaizer told me that the New Testament was first written in Hebrew, not in Greek. Is that true? Who told me that? Uh, a Judaizer, a, a man of Jewish background, perhaps. Oh, a Jew. Okay. Um, yeah, because the word Judaizer is a term that Paul coined in uh, the letter to the Galatians to refer to people uh, who were coming uh, into town saying you had to follow the law in order to be saved. Now, maybe that's what the question means, uh, but certainly there are, are a lot of people uh, who wouldn't agree to that, uh, who ask the question about uh, Hebrew or, or Aramaic backgrounds. 
It's a, it's a fascinating question. We have uh, ancient testimony from several Christians in the second, third, and fourth century that Matthew wrote something. The term that is used a, a couple of times is a word that normally means sayings. Matthew wrote the sayings of Jesus in a Hebrew dialect language. Could be Hebrew, could be Aramaic. It makes all the sense of the world since uh, he appears to be addressed in a little early testimony we have suggests that he's writing primarily to Jewish believers. We've never found such a document. There are medieval documents of the Gospel of Matthew Hebrew, um, but most of them appear to be translations from the Greek back into Hebrew. Um, beyond the Gospel of Matthew, there are no ancient traditions to suggest that any book was originally written in Hebrew or Aramaic. And I suppose the only other ones that it would even make sense to make such a proposal about would be the uh, letters of Hebrews and James, because uh, all the other books are written to Christian communities outside of Israel. And uh, Aramaic was spoken only among Jewish Christians within Israel. And Hebrew was not really spoken by very many people in the rest of the Roman Empire, even if they were of Jewish descent. Um, they spoke on where they lived, either Greek or Latin. Um, they may have had enough training to be able to understand um, some spoken Hebrew if on occasion biblical texts were read from the Hebrew. But the majority of evidence that we have suggests that uh, outside of Israel, people read what was called the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, even Jewish circles. And so there is, a, it's a sort of a mystical fascination in some circles. Wouldn't it be cool if uh, some of this stuff was originally in Hebrew? Um, why? Isn't it cool enough that it's in Greek? <laughs> and Greek's easier to learn. Um, if you want to know a little Greek, and not just the guy that runs the restaurant at the corner store. Um, so I almost wonder if sometimes it's prompted by the desire to be able to gain more special insight into nuances of meaning as if what we have isn't good enough. Well, how are you doing obeying everything that we have? You know, it's kind of like setting dates for the end times. Um, if you've got everything that's clear in the Bible figured out and are obeying it, really, really well, then maybe you have the luxury to start studying end time stuff. <laughs> um, maybe you can start flirting with ancient Hebrew documents, but there really is no actual evidence.
for it. And that will disappoint those people, I'm afraid. <laughs> so we, we have a few more about the canon of Scripture. And this one's pretty specific. Uh, someone in the audience says, I have a Bible from 1768 in Old English, and it has the five books that the Christian Bible or today's Bibles doesn't have. How reliable are these books, and should we read them? Five books? What books are we talking about? I, I'm assuming it was the, uh, the books included in the King James. Um, the, it's the Apocrypha that we're talking about. Well, there are uh, a dozen or so books that are in the uh, Old Testament Apocrypha, so I have no idea why uh, the questioner said five. Um, maybe just saw five of the big ones. I don't know. Um, and this has nothing whatsoever to do with uh, the fact that this person has a 1768 edition of the Bible. When the King James Bible was first published in 1611, uh, there were uh, editions that were published that included the Old Testament Apocrypha, and there were editions that were published that didn't. Um, the uh, purpose of the uh, Bible was to be a Bible for all people, um, not just for Protestants. And so the apocryphal books are books that uh, Roman Catholicism has historically included within the Old Testament. Um, and uh, Protestants have not. And the simplest, shortest answer as to why is because uh, no Jews ever put them in the Hebrew scriptures. And the Reformation said, let's go back to the uh, Bible of Jesus, the Jew, the Bible of his first followers who were all Jewish, and therefore uh, not include the Apocrypha, but even Martin Luther, and we just celebrated last October the 500th anniversary of the, the events that are often seen as triggering the Protestant Reformation. Even Martin Luther said, you want to read the Apocrypha, that's fine. You want to read it in church, that's fine. Just don't quote it as inspired Holy Scripture. Um, so you can find uh, in 1768 and in 1868, and uh, if you look hard enough in 1968, um, editions of the King James Bible and other translations of the Bible that have included the Apocrypha and many that haven't. More glazed over look. <laughs> Okay, so we have a little bit about the discussion of what books have been added to the Bible, or uh, just um, this one says, what are the two most dominant arguments bringing doubt to what is canon? And what are the best responses to these arguments? The two strongest arguments bringing doubt, doubt to what is to canon today. Canon? I don't know that there are any strong arguments. <laughs> um Certainly in today's world, the debates tend not to be. Yeah, you still find some Catholics and Protestants talking about the Apocrypha, but many, many Catholics 
will refer to these as deuterocanonical, a second tier of a canon. And it's not the inflammatory issue that it once was, pockets of places where it is. In the New Testament, uh, most of the really exotic, lively discussion is about Gnostic texts, books that came from the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th century that were produced by an uh, unorthodox sect or branch of Christianity that had imbibed various Greek philosophical influences. Um, one of the most foundational was that the material world, by definition, is evil, and therefore, uh, one certainly should hope for a resurrected body um, that would be carrying something evil with you for all eternity. Um, but only immortality is full, and that everyone had the spark of divinity uh, waiting, lurking deep inside of them, waiting just to be kindled into flame. It, it sort of appeals to people who want to create their own religion. Um, and so I suppose that, I don't know if they're the most difficult questions, but uh, I say I don't know that there are any really difficult questions, but the most common that you hear uh, surround the, uh, some of these Gnostics. And then, what year was it that the Da Vinci Code came out? About 2003 or thereabouts? Dan Brown did something that nobody else in the history of Christianity has ever been able to do. He wrote a completely fictitious novel, making up all kinds of fake news before that was a, a thing. And now there are people teaching it as fact in university. And I've met them because our research is so sloppy that we don't go beyond reading a novel written 15 years ago, and we think there were 70 or 80 other Gospels competing for acceptance in the canon. There weren't. Maybe a half a dozen, but not competing for acceptance. The Gnostics themselves never even put them forward as on a par with the New Testament. Everybody who is saying that today has made it up in the last 50 years, and a lot of it in the last 15 years. But golly, if it's on the internet and it fits what we are predisposed to want to believe, Christians take note. So, I had a woman a few years ago in my Sunday school class who was spreading the word to everybody in the church that Great Britain had now banned the teaching of Orthodox Christianity in all its required religion classes in their public schools. I have a daughter who's a permanent resident of the UK. My grandson is being brought up British. I'm learning to cope. married a Brit. What can I do? Um, they're wonderful people. I thought, this is ludicrous. But I gave a quick email to make sure, and it was ludicrous. 
And the woman said, well, I read it on a website. <laughs> and I'm, what was the question? <laughs> no, no, there, there really aren't any hard questions about the canon. Hmm. One, one that got asked are, what are some books that were considered, but they didn't make it into the Bible? There is a body of literature, and you can find it by Googling the Apostolic Fathers. I've never quite understood why they call them that. I think they should have called them the Apostolic Sons. But uh, these are second century writers who wrote pretty much completely orthodox works, most of them letters to other second century churches, um, a man by the name of Ignatius, who lived at the very beginning of the second century, wrote a number of these. Um, a man who was said to have been a disciple of the Apostle John, um, who lived to quite an old age and was martyred in his 80s, uh, early in the second century, by the name of Polycarp. Uh, there is... Uh, a letter written by an anonymous Christian, but it was attributed to somebody named Barnabas, and maybe it was somebody named Barnabas, named after the Barnabas of the New Testament. There is a book that is simply called The Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. Um, you may hear it called Didache, spelled Didache, D-I-D-A-C-H-E, um, which is the Greek word for teaching that sort of gives a, a manual on church order at the beginning of the second century. Um, how to do baptism, how to do the Lord's Supper, how to recognize a true prophet from a false prophet. My favorite verse in the whole document is, if a visiting prophet comes to town, welcome him, take him into your home. If he stays longer than three days, he's a false prophet. <laughs> And, and uh, there are, uh, there, there's a book that's simply called The Shepherd of Hermas, a man named Hermas, who has some, some beautiful parables, has some beautiful visions. These are all second century books. Um, and if you look at the approximately 40 lists of books that have been preserved from second fifth centuries of what should be treated as uh, inspired and part of the new covenant revelation, you will get uh, one or two of these in as many as four of the 40 lists. You'll get a couple more in two of them. You'll get a couple more in one of them. And you'll get another 36 lists that say nothing about any of them. And you will not get the Gnostic texts anywhere. So sometimes in conversation with skeptics or uh, non-believers, um, they might bring up uh, typos or missing words that um, happened or variants, uh, maybe some of the things that are in the footnotes of our Bibles today. Um, are yeah. those problematic, or what's the story behind no. those? 
that's that's the nice thing about having uh, more than 5,800 Greek manuscripts and another 20,000 in other ancient languages that the uh, Bible is translated into. Um, I, I like the way Dan Wallace at Dallas Seminary uh, puts it to um, not so much in his writings uh, because he knows they're going to be peer reviewed, but when he's talking to uh, to Christian audiences um, with a little bit of exaggeration, he'll he'll hold up a Bible and he'll say, "We have the original New Testament," and people are going, oh, "Wait, wait, what are you talking about?" And then he'll say. We just don't always know if it's in the text or in the footnotes. <laughs> well, even that's a little bit exaggerated mm -hmm. because there are a lot more footnotes in the Greek editions of the Bible than there are in the English ones of, of very trivial differences. Mm -hmm. But uh, the way somebody can uh, answer that question for themselves, if they're willing to take the time, is give them a good modern English translation that has a lot of footnotes. And if they're doing it all online, make sure they know where to click to find the footnotes. Hmm. And read through them. And decide for yourself. Oh, yeah, there are the two big ones. And there's only two like them. There's the longer ending of Mark, and there's the story of the woman caught in adultery, and the story of the woman caught in adultery in John 8 is probably true. Even Bart Ehrman believes that. But it probably just wasn't in what John originally wrote. The longer ending of Mark, I'm glad it wasn't in what Mark originally wrote. It tells me I can pick up snakes and drink their venom and not be harmed. And it's still legal in West Virginia to have snake handling cults, and they still exist, and every one of them sooner or later has fatalities. I don't want any part of that. <laughs> yeah. But okay. there is no doctrine, no ethical practice, unless you want to call snake handling <laughs> one of them, that depends on any text anywhere that has an interesting textual variant so sure i can acknowledge that in a heartbeat to my uh, unbelieving friend and say the bible is still vastly better preserved than any other book from the ancient world that we know of mm -hmm. uh so to conclude we have i think about a minute um, can you just share some of your latest uh research or writings um just just to show like if people wanted to look into uh, further what you've been working on, um, what, what can they look into? The very most recent book that I have published, um, and it's not like journalists who have something new every day, um, or even every month, came out at the end of 2016. I'm still not used to the fact that we're in 2018. Um, <laughs> I was all set to say, well, never mind. I only have one minute. It's called The Historical Reliability of the New Testament. It combines some stuff I've done before with lots of new material 
and it's really big and fat, but not that expensive as paperbacks go. Don't be intimidated by the size. They used a big font, but a lot of white space, and the paper is really thick. Um, it could have been crammed into a book half the size and probably sell better. But uh, the next thing I'm coming out with, hopefully by this year in November, is a theology of the New Testament with Baylor. For all my friends who have said you've spent so much of your career um, defending the reliability of the New Testament, when are you going to tell us what it actually teaches and how to think about it? I heard you, Mike White, and this book for you. Great. So with that, I just want to thank you again personally for uh, taking the time uh, to be with us virtually and to answer our specific questions. Well, thanks for you guys doing uh, something on a Saturday morning most of the world wouldn't think of doing. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, thank you, and we're going to transition. Uh, everyone else, I just want to announce that uh, Dr. Frank Turek will be in the main worship center just talking about just uh, general apologetics, kind of covering a whole spectrum of questions. And in this room, in the next session after our 10-minute break, is Dr. Michael Brown. And he's talking about some of the social issues, um, either like homosexuality or uh, abortion, just some of the kind of social things that have been coming up in society lately. He's basically, you could, he's an expert in that field. So uh, Dr. Frank Turek in the next room, Dr. Michael Brown will be in here. So you'll take a 10-minute break right now and kind of decide where you want to be. Thank you, guys. Thank you.